to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 33 this morning. And I'm not going to read that at the beginning. I'm going to refer to it as we go along through the text this morning. But if you'd have your Bibles open to that, that would be helpful. A few weeks ago, Gail and I were watching a movie on television that was called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. Now, many of you may have seen that. It's an older movie. It was on the classic movie channel. But it's a story of Gladys Aylward, who was a missionary in China. And uh, Gladys Aylward was born in 1902 in Britain. And at age 18, she attended a revival meeting where the speaker challenged those young adults to give their heart to the Lord. And she sensed God's call leading her toward missions, and in particular, she wanted to serve in China. And uh, she applied with the China Inland Mission, and she was rejected. And she would try other opportunities and avenues and agencies to get to China, and all of them really turned out to be a closed door for her. But she had this burden on her heart. She had this desire to want to go there and serve, and so she continued to pray and persevere. Uh, She had been rejected because she was uh, a housemaid who lacked the training, the education, and what they thought would be the skills for her to be successful in this ministry in China. Well, at age 30, an opportunity came for her. There was an older woman who had been working in China whose name was Jeannie Lawson, who ran an inn. And she needed help from someone who could come along, and it seemed to be a perfect fit for Gladys. She had been a housemaid. She could help in working in this inn. Well, when she went to China, she made it there through the overland route, and she got there and arrived. You know, she had the difficult things of learning a new culture, learning a new language, but she persevered. And God used her in a marvelous way to share the gospel with many in the area where she worked. She also worked to help put an end to the foot binding of women and children that was going on at that time. And she also was used to care for orphans, for children that were being abandoned. In fact, there is a significant event in her life that is told in that movie where she, during the days prior to World War II, when the Japanese were coming in and taking control over China, She led a hundred children through the mountains to safety in a very difficult journey. Gladys Aylward, was she qualified or was she unqualified? You know, when you look back in her life and, you know, when you read and hear the story, you can understand why the mission agency was being careful on who they sent. They wanted to have those who were trained and who they felt were qualified. But what you see so often, both in Scripture and in real life, is that God looks at things differently than we do. And sometimes those things that we think qualify a person aren't the most important things. And God raises up and He uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. He did that in the life of Gladys Aylward, the small one, who became known in China as the virtuous one because of her godly character. So what is it that qualifies a person to serve? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to look at it from two sides. I'm going to begin by pointing out some things that don't qualify us to serve on their own. And then we'll look at what it is that God really does look for in a person who is going to serve. 
One of the things we see in this passage is that it isn't power or control that qualifies us to serve. And let me read for you verses 16 to 21. Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. And since many are boasting in the way the world does, I will too boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who, who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I must admit that we were too weak for that. Now, for those of you who have been here, we know that what Paul is doing here is really using irony because of these false teachers who had come in and who claimed to have certain credentials or abilities. They looked down on Paul because of his supposed lack of training. And Paul, who is just reluctant to do this at all, begins to speak like a fool. In fact, this passage introduces Paul's fool's speech, as it is called. It is called that because he is going to do this boasting, but he isn't doing this boasting to build himself up. Rather, he wants to show how foolish these false teachers really are that have come into Corinth. And so that's why he says, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. And he uses this irony to make his point. Paul uses five words here to describe what these false teachers were doing in the church at Corinth. Number one, they enslaved people. They were putting the Corinthians back under the law instead of living by grace and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. They exploited people. Literally, they swallowed them up like a greedy man. He goes on to say that they took advantage of them for personal gain. They were in this just simply for the money or to make a profit themselves. They pushed themselves forward. It's the idea of lording it over someone. They wanted to be in the front in the primary position and they were going to get there. They were aggressive. And they even slapped you in the face, Paul says as a way of dealing with insolence or abuse so that they could maintain their control. It is remarkable when you hear those things that were going on that the Corinthians put up with it at all. And yet sometimes you'll hear stories of churches even today where pastors have been abusive, manipulated people, took control, worked things to their advantage. And you wonder, why do people put up with that? Why do they go along with it? And yet that's exactly what was happening here. I could say kind of tongue-in-cheek that this is sort of like the Joseph Stalin approach to church leadership. You know, you, you seize power by force and then you use it to your advantage. And that's what these individuals were doing. And Paul is basically saying in this passage that if tyranny and greed and falsity and arrogance and violence are the marks of authentic Christian leadership... Then I guess I'm a weakling, and, you know, that's just where I am. And you can see what he is doing here, hoping that they will get the point. Instead, we read that Paul came to the Corinthians with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He came as a servant. He came humbly, wanting to help them and to minister to them. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said that we should do, too? Do you remember the story in the Gospels in Matthew 
where the mother of James and John came to Jesus and she had a request. She comes to Jesus, she's got her two sons with her, James and John, and she kneels down before Jesus. And she says, Jesus, I have a favor to ask you. When you come in your kingdom, would you grant that my sons would sit at your right hand and your left hand? You know, she doesn't specify which one where. She'll leave that to Jesus. But, you know, she's making this request. When you come in your kingdom, would you grant that my sons would have the prominent positions next to you? It was a bold request. I mean, it was audacious even, you might say, to to ask that. And yet, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. The other disciples were a little miffed by this, like, what's she doing, you know, trying to get this one-upsmanship on us or something? But Jesus did not rebuke her. Instead, he said simply that that's not for me to decide. That's for my Father in heaven to decide who will have those positions in the kingdom that is to come. But he took that incident and used it as an opportunity to talk about what real leadership is in the kingdom of God. And here's what he said. Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was turning things upside down. The world says the way to get ahead is to really make much of yourself, be aggressive, push yourself forward, seize those leadership positions, and go that route. And it said Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must learn to serve. You must learn to serve because that's the way of Jesus. That's exactly what he did when he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was a lesson that they would not forget, nor should we. And we see that in Paul's heart. When he came to these churches, he came not to be served or catered to or to have them wait on him. He came bringing the gospel, wanting to minister to them and not be a burden in his ministry. It isn't power or control that qualifies someone to serve. And secondly, it isn't our background or our family tree or our credentials that qualify us to serve. The world, again, may operate that way. It may say, you know, well, if you know just the right people or if you have just the right family background or these credentials or that, well, then we can put you forward in service. And these false teachers followed the pattern of the world. They boasted about their connections and training. Uh, They made claims like, we are true Israelites of Jewish birth. Uh, We've been trained in the best of Greek education. They were skilled in rhetoric. They were experts in the law. And they claimed all of those things, and they kind of looked down on Paul and said, you know, Paul doesn't quite measure up to our standards. Well, they didn't know Paul very well. Paul's credentials, if anyone wanted to look at them, were actually impeccable. He just didn't go around bragging about it. And he will answer them here in 21 and 22. Again, it's difficult for him to do this. 
But he says, What anyone else dares to boast about, and I am speaking as a fool again, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And you can hear it, you know how painful it is, but he will tell us, for example, in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, that, you know, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, the strictest uh, group in terms of their understanding and application of the law. Paul had been trained in Jerusalem. He had sat under the feet of Gamaliel, who was the most prominent of all the Jewish rabbis. I mean, he had all of those credentials and skills and background. He could have said much more in this passage. I mean, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was where Israel's first king came from. His name was Saul. He was named after Israel's first king, Saul. And, you know, he could have gone through this whole list of family background, pedigree, all the history and all the training he had. But he said, you know what? I mean, that'd be speaking again like a fool. That's not the point of this. In fact, as you go on in that passage in Philippians, he'll say, you know what, I used to value those things. I used to think that was the most important thing. But I've come to recognize and count all of those things as rubbish in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There was a change in heart in Paul. And he began to look at people and places and circumstances and credentials quite differently. Now, I want to say this at this point. In calling attention to this, this is not an anti-education message. You know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be trained. We should. I'm not saying that we shouldn't get a good education. We should. In fact, God deserves our very best And we need to be well trained as Christians in whatever area that we are serving in. Whatever our vocation is, we need to be well trained. As doctors, as teachers, as lawyers, as builders or businessmen and women, whatever our profession, we should get the skills we need to do that well. Because who are we serving? We are serving the Lord. We're not just serving men or a boss or someone that we work for. And I love hearing the stories of Christians who are well respected in their field because of their character and because of their skills. You know, every year at the uh, National Conference, one of the things that Gail and I try to go to is um, because I'm a graduate of Trinity, we go to the Trinity Alumni Banquet. And there's always an Alumni of the Year that is honored there. And I love hearing the stories of how God is using these individuals, whether it's in ministry or missions or business or some other area that they are serving in. Some of them are chaplains in the military. Some of them are authors and teachers at seminaries and Bible colleges. Some of them have given leadership to whole uh, denominations in other countries, including in Africa and other parts of the world. And it is just wonderful. I think it brings glory to God to hear these stories of men and women who have developed and used their gifts for God's honor and His glory. And so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that credentials aren't important, but they are not the only thing that we look at. 
Because somebody can have all the credentials in the world and it may just simply puff them up with pride. Or someone may be simply a well-educated snob who doesn't have a heart to serve the Lord at all. It isn't our training. It isn't the initials behind our name that qualifies us to serve. What qualifies us to serve is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is primary. We see that in verses 23 and following through the end of the chapter. What qualifies us to serve is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul wrote earlier in this letter in chapter 3, verse 5, when he talked about the responsibility of ministry and he said, who is adequate for such a work as this? I mean, which one of us is adequate to say, you know, follow me as I follow Christ or to say, you know, um, I am competent to lead this church or this ministry or this mission work? God says all of us, you know, all of us have our weaknesses, our failings, our sin. Our competence comes from God. It is God who makes us able to serve, and that's what Paul was affirming there in chapter 3. It is God who empowers us. It's God who equips us. It's God who gives us wisdom and strength. It's God who guides us and directs as we seek Him. Now, at this point in the letter... Paul's enemies probably thought that Paul would have given a list of his strengths and accomplishments. Paul's opponents expected him to say something like this, and this comes from D.A. Carson, who teaches at our seminary and wrote this kind of tongue-in-cheek. They expected Paul to say, you know, I've established more churches... I've preached the gospel in more lands to more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I've written more books. I have raised more money. I have dominated more councils. I have walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I have commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. You know, they probably expected Paul to say that because that's what they would have said if they could have. They would have boasted about all these kinds of things. But instead, Paul chose to talk about his suffering. He chose to talk about his weakness. Because in Paul's weakness, we see the power of God and we see his likeness to Jesus Christ as Paul walks the way of the cross. I cannot read this list in 2 Corinthians without being moved by it. No matter how many times I come to this list and I read what Paul suffered, it touches and it pulls at my heart. Paul is uncomfortable even in saying these things. And yet it is an amazing witness to the grace of God in his life how Paul survived all of this. There is no other answer than God gave him the strength. What did Paul suffer for their sake and for us? Well, beginning in verse 23, he says, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. All of that he suffered as a servant of Christ. He mentions the floggings that he received. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Flogging was a particularly Jewish punishment. 
And in the law, in Deuteronomy 25, it said that you should not exceed 40 lashes, lest your brother be degraded in your sight. And so what the Jews did was they stopped one short of that, the 39 lashes, in case they miscounted, that they would not exceed that amount. It was done in the synagogue. A person would be brought in who was charged with things like blasphemy or heresy, and they would be stripped and they would be flogged in the presence of all that were there in that synagogue. It was extremely painful and humiliating. I can't imagine going through it once, let alone five times. 195 lashes on Paul's back. He was beaten with rods three times. This was a Roman punishment. A Roman punishment for things like disorderly conduct or stirring up a crowd or a riot. And there are those times in Scripture where we see that happen. The only recording of it we have is in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And they were thrown into prison because of this disturbance in the city. They were stripped naked. They were beaten until the magistrates were satisfied. And then they were put in chains in a Roman jail. In that passage in Scripture in Acts 16, we read that about midnight, Paul and Silas, who are here in these chains, you know, being held up, began to sing hymns of praise to God. I mean, that's astounding. Here they are, after all that they have suffered and gone through, you know, Paul is saying, Silas, you want to sing? You want to sing? And they began to praise God. We don't know the worship songs that they sang in particular, but you can hear their heart. And God moved and there was an earthquake that shook the whole building and the chains were released in the Philippian jailer. And it is at that point when he comes in, he has heard all of this. He has seen their punishment. He's heard their joy and their faith. And he asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul was stoned. That story is recorded in Acts 14.19 in the city of Lystra, where Paul, again, by an angry mob, was taken outside the city where he was stoned and left for dead. The next day, Paul gets up, and he and Barnabas leave for Derbe, a nearby city. And they would later return going back to Lystra, strengthening the brothers all along the way in these new churches that have been started. He was shipwrecked, it said, three times. He spent a day and night floating in the open sea, probably clinging to some remnants of the ship. Travel was dangerous in the Mediterranean. To be a sailor was to flirt with death. But this is highly unusual that Paul would have experienced in his travels three separate occasions where he was shipwrecked, including so severely that he would be adrift at sea. He mentions specific dangers that he suffered in verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own countrymen, and danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. Travel was difficult. When you went through the mountainous regions of Turkey, there aren't a lot of bridges where you can cross, and there would be bandits who would wait for you there. If you tried crossing at other areas, those rivers could be tumultuous, and it was difficult to ford them. 
And Paul found himself constantly dealing with danger of all kinds. But the worst, the one that he mentions last in this list, is the danger from false teachers, which really should be a red flag to the Corinthians. And then we read about the voluntary suffering and the privations that Paul went through in verse 27. Times when he labored and toiled on their behalf without taking money from those that he was serving. He often went without sleep. He had known hunger and thirst, doing without. He had often gone without food. He had been cold and naked. And naked there can mean simply poorly clothed for the elements that he was in. Paul suffered greatly. And then he ends this list in verses 28 and 29 by saying, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul's pastoral heartache was his greatest daily pressure. The thing that weighed on his heart more than anything was not his personal suffering, but his concern for the churches. And he says, Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? When he saw believers who were struggling and who were weak and going through hardships or trials or persecution, he empathized with them. He felt for them. But when he saw false teachers coming into the church who were trying to lead them astray from Christ, Paul was angry. His heart burned at that because he had the heart of a shepherd, the heart of a pastor who wanted to look out and protect his people. I can identify with that. I cannot imagine the suffering that Paul experienced and the others, but I can understand what it means to have a heart of a shepherd that is concerned for the people that you serve. Wanting them all to know Christ, wanting them all to maintain consistency in their walk with God, so that when that great day comes, that we will be reunited once again in heaven. That is Paul's concern here. He shares these sufferings not to call any credit to himself, but to give glory to God and to say that the only reason that I'm even here today is simply by the grace of God. You know, one of the things that hit me as I was studying the passage this week is that all of these sufferings occurred by the time we get to the book of Acts chapter 20. It's not even the whole of it. It's just, you know, and there were shipwrecks and there were sufferings and there were trials and imprisonments that occur after that. Christostom, one of the early fathers, observed that we don't know the half of what Paul suffered. It is far more than even what he shared here. And why did Paul do that? Why did Paul keep going? Because of three things. Because of God's call in his life. He was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a servant of Christ. And it was because of who Jesus is that He is Lord. And He told us that in 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. He said, The love of Christ constrains me. Having concluded this, that one died for all, and He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ held them in. If Jesus Christ is Lord and He is God and He is then how can we give him anything less than our very best? And thirdly, Paul did it because he knew there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we may be saved than the name of Jesus. 
That's why Paul, that's why the other apostles were willing to lay down their life to bring this message to those who had never heard it before. Paul will say in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Can you imagine Paul knowing in every city that he went to that he could be brought before the Jews in the synagogue charged with blasphemy and flogged. And yet he kept going to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That was his mode of ministry as he went from place to place. And where did this all start for Paul? It's interesting that he ends this account with one little specific story. And I think it's because of this reason. This started on the road to Damascus for Paul when Paul met the risen and living Christ and his life was forever changed. And Paul would say, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about my weakness, for there God's glory and His power is clearly shown. Listen to this little story. He said, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. That's kind of an unusual story to include there. Why did he put that in? I think it's because in Roman culture, Roman culture prized the hero who scaled the wall. You know, he's the military tough guy who's going to climb that wall and take the city. That's the hero. That's what people sort of wanted, maybe even Paul to be. And Paul says, you know what? I was lowered in a basket to escape the city. It was humbling. It was maybe embarrassing. But it was by God's grace that I stand. And Paul, the persecutor who went to Damascus to round up the Christians to put them to death, became Paul, the persecuted one. All of those credentials that he once thought were important, all of those things that were sort of status in society, no longer mattered. What mattered most was Jesus Christ. And what matters most to God is not our background or power or credentials, What matters most is our relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do we know Him? Do we love Him? And do we serve Him? That's the proof of our relationship with Him. Because to know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to serve Him. And to serve Him is to know Him. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, Jesus said, you must learn to serve. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? To learn to serve humbly without taking credit to ourselves. To give you the honor and glory for your grace in our life. To look for ways that we can be a blessing to others in the name of Christ. To answer your call when you ask us to go or to serve. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for what he was willing to do for your sake for the gospel's sake, so that we could be here today even to know you and to enjoy the relationship that we have. Lord, teach us all to serve, we pray. Amen.